Tēnā koutou. Welcome to Te Heringa Waka's Distinguished Alumni Podcast Series. I am Professor Rawania Higgins, Deputy Vice-Chancellor Māori, and it's my pleasure to be here today with Judge Hemi Taimonu. Judge Hemi Taimonu, Ngāti Porau, Ngāti Konohi, and Ngaitahu, graduated from Te Heringa Waka with a Bachelor of Laws in 1993. He was appointed Chief District Court Judge in September 2019, Born in Tairafiti, fluent in Te Reo, he is the first Māori to be appointed to the role. Through various leadership roles in the District Court, Judge Taumainu has encouraged a wider appreciation of the value of culturally responsible justice, particularly through the innovation of Ngā Kōti Rangatahi or Aotearoa, the Marae-based Rangatahi Corps. He has been the Tangata Whenua representative on the Chief Judge's Advisory Group and has chaired the Kaupapa Māori Advisory Group. In these roles, he has been a driving force in encouraging the District Court to embrace tikanga as a way to enhance Māori engagement and confidence in the court. Tēnā koe, kōrero mai, ko ai koe, no hea koe, and can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about who you are? Kia ora, Rawinia. Uh, ko ai te tāho takupāpā, ko hikurangi te maunga, uh, weapu te awa. Ngāti Parauti iwi whānui, ko whāngārā mai te whiti, te maraiki te teirawhiti, ko paikea te tūpuna. I te taha o taku kōkā nō te waipaunamu, ko aura ki te maunga, waitaki te awa, kaitahu te iwi, kā ti huirapa te hapu, aro whenua te marae. Ko taku ingoa, ko hemi taumanu, ko taku tūnga mahi, ko te kaiwhakawā matua o te kōti ārohe. Nō reira, tēnā koe. Tēnā koe. Mm. Mm. E, mō te hunga kāre mōhio ki te kōro Māori? Hai. My pepeha starts with the Hikurangi Mountain on the east coast of the North Island, the Waiapu River, the Ngāti Pro tribe, and then my sub-tribe is Ngāti Konohi, and that marae on the east coast is Whangara Maitawhiti, uh, where the whale rider Paikea is from. On my mother's side, the mountain is Mount Cook. Waitaki is a river. Uh, the tribe is Ngaitahu. The sub-tribe is Ngāti Huirapa. And the uh, marae is Arofenua. My name is Hemi Taumaru, and I'm the Chief District Court Judge. Tēnā you came to Te Heringa Waka from Te Tairawhiti and Ōtautahi after a few years in the army. What made you want to study law? Well, when I was born, we were brought up in Tolaga Bay, in Uaua. We moved when I was very young, and I attended primary and secondary school down in Christchurch. So did all of our siblings. When I was 15, I decided to join the army and left school after the fifth form joined when I was 16 years of age and spent five years in the army, in the regular force. When I was 20 or 21, I recall my father came to see me at the army camp and we had a sit down and he effectively said, well, now's the time to think about going to law school. So that's what really changed it for me from being a career soldier to going into university. When I joined the army, I I did read a lot of books, especially the ones that were written by Apirana Ngata, Tāpirana. So 
I was pretty easy to be persuaded. It was easy to be persuaded to go to law school. The only difficulty was I didn't actually have university entrance. And so it just so happened in that year, 1989, when I decided to leave the army and join or go to university. Moana Jackson started the quota for Māori law students that year, that very year. And because he started that year, I was able to gain entry into law school. I think he still asks the same question of law students even now. I remember in the interview for the quota, he asked, when you become a lawyer, what sort of lawyer are you going to be? Are you going to be a Māori who's a lawyer or who happens to be a lawyer? Or are you going to be a lawyer who happens to be a Māori? I found that quite a difficult question to answer because I didn't really understand what he was on about. And many law students who are watching this, especially Māori ones who've gone through the quota and been asked that similar question, might feel in the same predicament. What is the correct answer to that question? Well, I must have answered it correctly because I did gain entry to the quota. I can't even remember what my answer was, but uh, I do recall the question. And it's a question that uh, stayed with me. You were appointed to the district court bench in January 2004 when you became the first district court judge to swear your oaths in English and te reo. What were some of the, what are some key experiences in that role? Well, the experiences in that role were really uh, a follow-on from the experience that I'd had at school, in the army, and then in practice because I practiced in Gisborne. When, when I became a lawyer. I did spend a little bit of time here in Wellington immediately after qualifying and I actually worked for the Immigration Service and also for Tapuni Kōkiri in the legal section before, starting in a private firm in Gisborne. But I eventually started specialising in criminal work and family court work when I was practising as a lawyer. And so that's it was the criminal uh, court that I went into when when I became a judge and armed with all those experiences of working with mainly with our people in Gisborne in fact that court has a very high percentage of Māori who go through that criminal court so it gave me insight well not just that but also obviously a life experience into the challenges that people face when they're dealing with the criminal justice system. And when I say people, I'm talking about not just the people who are charged with offences, but also everyone else involved, including the victims and and whānau. So I had a fairly good understanding of what the challenges might have been as a defence lawyer, but when I became a judge, it became pretty clear that the challenges weren't just confined to a little place called Gisborne or the Tairafti. Those same challenges were very much alive and well, in my first posting, which was Taitokero, up in Whangarei. And the same challenges presented themselves when I moved to Waitakere, and I spent a, a decade in Waitakere. The challenges weren't confined to Māori. They were really faced by all sorts of sectors of society. And in terms of the criminal law, the fact that someone may or may not have been Māori was not the defining factor in many of the cases that came before us especially in a place like Waitakere, which was, which is and still is a very multicultural, vibrant society. And so we were, I was, as a judge, exposed to all sorts of issues that came about for different reasons, but nevertheless needed to be addressed. And ultimately one of the things that was very clear was the need to focus on ensuring fairness in the way that people are dealt with. And that, that in itself was a major challenge because 
there have been four decades or thereabouts of concern expressed about our court in terms of the way we deal with people and criticisms that what we do is, is actually unfair. That has many different aspects to it, but that was my experience, that many people who came to court had considered the court as being a place where they couldn't seek justice, and so I was pretty aware, acutely aware of that dynamic when dealing with people. Were these experiences um, what led you to develop the Rangatahi Court in 2008? To a large extent, yes. It seemed that the, well, going back to the Rangatahi Court, that that kicked off in the beginning of 2008 when I was assigned by the then Principal Youth Court Judge to be the liaison judge for the Tairafti for the Youth Court. And so... The first thing I recall doing was I organised a meeting of all of the people who were involved in the court, and I knew most of them because I'd practised with them previously when I was a lawyer there. And when we had that meeting, the overwhelming message that came through, very consistent amongst everyone involved, and we're talking about people, lawyers had been in the system for three decades, and social workers had been around for a long time, and court staff who'd been around for a long time. The message was they had seen members of the same family, and we're talking generations, grandfathers, fathers, sons and great-grandsons going through the youth court system, graduating into the adult district court system and spending large parts of their life in prison. And so the, the sense of frustration was real at that meeting in 2008, and people were were keen to explore ways of doing things differently. And so it always struck me that we were in a system of justice that had, up until that point, and I'm talking about the criminal justice system, had not incorporated te reo at all and had not incorporated tikanga and had really not recognised the fact that most of the people in that Gisborne Youth Court were Māori. And so... It was a very monocultural uh, system that we were operating and it, it just seemed like a natural fit to express the idea to the local marae, te pōhuarawari marae, that it would be helpful perhaps to take that whole court system and run it at the marae. Now, we didn't take the whole system because we what we ended up doing was once a young person had admitted that he or she had committed the crime, we then took them to the marae for the monitoring of their plan and to uh, sentence them at the end of that plan. Now, in, in terms of setting all of that up, it was seen as a novel idea for the legal system, but it wasn't a novel idea for the Māori people who were involved. Marae had been used in the past extensively for dealing with issues, resolving disputes, and so... It was something of a natural fit. The only difference was that this was taking the actual legal system, LAW, to the marae, which was and still is the last bastion of Māoridom. Now, in the consultation meetings that happened in the beginning of 2008 with local iwi, there was a meeting, I, I recall quite vividly, where the whole idea was almost abandoned because that, that was a very strong expression of discontent, I suppose, about the legal system that was made in this particular meeting. It was a key meeting. It, it brought all of the elders together of the Tairawhiti for a decision to be made about whether or not to progress with this particular idea and take the kaupapa to Te Pohorawari. And 
it, there was a point at that meeting where I, I believe that it was all over before it started. And so I actually said to the meeting, thank you for hearing me out. I think we'll forget about it and we won't do this. That's where it got to. And then one of the old queer, one of the elderly women stood up and said, well, this is actually about the children. It's about the future generations and Alma and I should be trying to look after them. It's not actually about the manner of anyone involved. It's about these children and trying to do our best for them. So that turned the meeting. And interestingly enough, some of the most um, vocal opponents of the kaupapa were some of the strongest supporters. So it is. it never ama- it ceases to amaze me how quickly a meeting can turn. And that's, that's a good example of it. So the Rangatahi court almost never happened. And then all of a sudden it happened with huge support uh, from the iwi behind it. The people who were involved in the actual tikanga that, that supplied and the kawa that supplied in the rangatahi court, especially that first one in Tairawhiti, were effectively all of the leading kaumatu and kuia who advised about how you could successfully incorporate the law, LAW, with tikanga and kawa. And so there were, there were all sorts of nuanced ideas that were at play in the way that that particular court operates. It has now grown to spread across the whole country, uh, that particular idea. And whenever, whenever I've sat in that court, what it's really done for me is confirm just how important process is in ensuring that people believe that they've been treated fairly. And it is something that I've taken with me, a, a lesson uh, that we're trying to apply in the district court generally, our announcement of the Te Ao Marama Kaupapa. But ultimately it is about fairness because where people feel comfortable enough to tell you what's on their mind, and it's not always easy to engineer that in a courthouse, but it is actually quite manageable to achieve that type of outcome on a marae, as those who are familiar with marae will know. Ultimately people do have a better chance of being heard and understood where they feel that they can participate and do so in a meaningful way. The examples that I've experienced are, are in fact many of, of exactly that point. But I, I do recall one in particular where I do think the the general community that supports the youth court had actually given up on a, a young person. And it's understandable why, because the ability to communicate with that young person and the young person's whānau was, I think, just almost impossible to do so in a conventional way. And so even the thought of taking them to the rangatahi court was was opposed by everyone. But we gave it a go because I knew that there might have been a chance of actually resolving this on the marae. So we did take them there. And it was interesting because one of the reasons for the inability to communicate with with anyone involved in the process was that everyone in the whānau spoke at once and that happened on the marae. So it was impossible to hear what was being said because everyone was saying something at the same time. And then one of the queer at the marae actually stood up and just said, look, there's only one rule on the marae. One person speaks at, at one time and when other people are speaking, we all listen. Now, I'm not sure that would have gone down well if that had been said in a courthouse. It might have been okay, but 
it hadn't worked so far because the same message given by a different messenger worked. And it wasn't wasn't plain sailing because when people are in a habit, it's quite hard to break a habit. But we eventually got there, and in the end, what we found was a whānau who were very supportive and loved this young person and wanted to do their best. But that hadn't been able to be communicated because of the way that this was habitually being played out every time this whānau came to court. And, and this young person successfully completed their plan and ended up being discharged. Now, that to me might be a very small example of what I'm talking about, but in the scheme of things, it is quite a small example. But for that young person and that whānau, it reinforced the fact that they had received a fair hearing, they'd been understood, and a young person who may well have ended up in custody as a result of just the inability to communicate ended up successfully completing a plan and moving on with that young person's life. So ultimately if you were to ask that family what they thought of the hearing and whether it was fair, I never asked them but I would be surprised if they said that uh, it wasn't fair. At the time of setting it up, was part of the tension from the kaumatua around, as you described, the marae being the last bastion and this encroachment of the law coming into the marae? Or... Absolutely. That, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was real. It was so real, in fact, that the idea almost never started. It, it almost never got past that hui. Because it was the pathway that, that was the context for that hui. People understood what we were talking about when multiple generations of whānau were following that same pathway. And it started, it actually starts earlier than the youth court, by the way, because they're 12 to 14 by the time they enter the youth court. And everyone realises it starts much earlier than that. But at least when we're talking about what we can do practically, that that was the, the turning point in the hui. And on the flip side, did you get resistance from people in the law profession or the judiciary themselves? Is something new as where Māori were getting softer treatment? Uh, not, not so much that, because um, the... Just going back to the first part of that question, the leadership of the district court at the time were very, very supportive of the need to try and do something innovative and the need to try and improve the processes so that they not only were fair but were seen to be fair because there's two concepts involved in this. There's actually being fair and there is the perception of being fair. So we might be actually fair but people leave fair as an F-A-I-R. We may be actually involving ourselves in fair process but that that doesn't always translate into people leaving the court believing that they've been treated fairly, which has been the experience of a lot of people in terms of the last four decades, as far as the reports and all the calls for transformative change tell us. But the leaders of the district court at the time, so the chief judge at the time was Russell Johnson, the principal youth court judge at the time was Andrew Beecroft. They were both very supportive of the idea of taking the marae to the, uh, taking the youth court to the marae. It was new back then, so I don't think that there was much opposition to the idea from the mainstream because it wasn't in the mainstream. And in fact, it wasn't even part of the legal landscape at the time. So the only concern I had in my mind was that somehow by doing this, we 
because it was so different uh, from the way that we'd done things in the past, that we might um, somehow break the legal system overnight by doing it. Now that was that wasn't a real fear, but it, it did cross my mind that we were venturing into uncharted territory that uh, we'd never been to before. But when I say that, uh, what really gave me confidence was just the the way that the Komato and Queer were so clear in their understanding and idea of how tikanga and kawa could actually be incorporated properly into the legal process. And so that gave me a lot of confidence to go ahead and give it a try. When you became Chief District Court Judge in 2019, what was your sense of what this meant for our Māori community and your iwi? Uh, I think there was probably two things going on. There, there was great expectation. There's a lot of responsibility taking on this role, and it's not just for my community or, or Māori people. It's actually for all people served by the court. So people were expecting a lot, and they were also hopeful, I think, and it was said fairly clearly at the swearing-in ceremony when I, when I became Chief Judge. They were hopeful that we could do something about the cause for transformative change that had been targeting the district court for 40 years because effectively that's that's how long these calls for change have been around specifically in terms of the criminal justice system and the family justice system. Those calls for change go all the way back to 1840 but most of them in the past were about land grievance and uh, when I'm talking about calls for change to the justice system in our context of the district court I am talking about family law and criminal law primarily. So there was hope that we could make our system of justice in the district court make improvements and, you know, ultimately if we can, then we are making our country a better place to live in for everyone because that's actually what this is intended to do by ensuring people do get a fair hearing and that in doing so, judges themselves have the best available information to make well-informed decisions which then translates into a fair result, whatever that might be. And that's certainly reflected in the Te Ao Marama. Very much so. And yes. can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, it was always intended when I became the Chief Judge that we would respond in some way to the course for transformative change. And probably the context for that response is that we have actually been responding as a district court for many years to the course for change. When you think about the Rangatahi Court, that is a good example of it. That was started back in 2008. We've been running family violence courts for a good two decades now. And again, these are responses to concerns that have uh, really been targeted at the district court. And they are judicially-led initiatives that we have seen district court judges all over the country champion. The Alcohol and Other Drug Court in Auckland and Waitakere and now Hamilton. They're good examples of judicially led and supported by government initiatives that are intended to try and ensure that people are provided with alternative pathways out of the justice system, which is very resource intensive, but also when you think about the individuals involved, it, it is changing lives. And in terms of the Te Ao Marama Kaupapa, one of the one of the real difficulties, as I see it at the moment, that we do need to address properly is that it depends on where you live at the moment, whether or not you can access any of these 
specialist courts, especially the criminal courts. So if you don't happen to be lucky enough to live in a particular spot where there's a rangatahi court or a matariki court or an alcohol or other drug court, then it becomes very difficult to see that as a system that provides the opportunity to everyone. And the Te Aumarama Kaupapa is actually designed to try and spread the same type of approach across the whole country. Now, when you think about the lessons we've learnt from these specialist courts, what we've learnt is that process is very important in ensuring a fair hearing and ensuring that people do leave the court feeling that they've been treated fairly. Whether we have the ability to simply pick up some of these models and just put them all over the country, it's it's questionable because of the resource involved in trying to do this on a large scale across the whole country. But we have, I think, in our minds at the moment, a realistic plan about how we bring the opportunities to as many people as possible who wish to take these opportunities and to deal with them in a solution-focused way as opposed to what might not be a solution-focused way at the moment. That's a bit of the background to uh, what Te Aumarama was all about in terms of it not being a new development. These approaches have been taken on by our district court judges for a long time, but it's apparent that we need to ensure that all of our courts are able to at least offer some opportunity to find a pathway out of the system for many people who are trapped in it. Now, that's not saying necessarily that it's going to be easy to do it or that it's going to take a certain period of time and we can be very fixed about that. The reality of this is at the same time as continuing what is a very large court, just business as usual, engaging in transformative change is going to take some time and it's going to take some effort. So we are committed to doing it, but realistic about the the reality of what it is that we've taken on. It's it's a very big project, big kaupapa. Totally. And I think in in terms of um, the influence that you and many of your contemporaries have had in terms of ensuring that fairness prevails in that system has led to some of the changes that the law faculty will have to address in terms of incorporating te Māori and te Māori as part of the Council for Legal Education's recommendation. Mm. So are you excited by the changes to the potential changes to the law faculty in terms of how the, what they offer in, around tikanga as part of the LLB? I, I am excited because the legal landscape is changing. The role of law schools in, as part of that changing landscape is crucial uh, because today's students become tomorrow's lawyers and lawyers play a huge role in uh, transformative change. The indications we've received from the lawyers involved in Te Aumarama at the moment is hugely positive. We have to bear in mind, of course, that although we are providing opportunities for people to work their way through alternative pathways, and that, that's really the, the point of all of this, we're still very mindful of fair trial rights, and that's something that's that's not lost on us. There is a balance in all of this, that people still have the ability to and the expectation by law of receiving a fair trial. But in doing so, where people plead guilty particularly, these opportunities should be made available to them if we can. 
And so at the moment we've started the Kaupapa in Hamilton and in Gisborne and we're looking this year to announce other locations where we will continue the national rollout of Te Ao Marama. Boy. As one of our distinguished alumni, is there one whakatuki that you would choose that has served you well over time? I know it's always hard because... Oh, there's probably more than one, but um, one that comes to mind when I'm thinking about Te Ao Marama is just a, a very practical one. He iti te mokoroa, kahinga. And, and I think if we uh, translate that loosely, it is the borer grub, which although it is a very small insect, does have the ability over time to topple even a, the tallest tree in the forest, the white pine. So that's, that's something to bear in mind in terms of all of this transformative change. It won't happen overnight. There is no magic bullet, but all there is is hard work consistent effort and commitment to achieve change. Apply. And finally, if Moana Jackson asked you that question today, yes, the same question he asked you as part of the quota system, yes. would, what do you think your answer would be? Well, I know what my answer is now. I didn't really, I, I guessed it last time. But the answer is pretty clearly, I'm a Māori who happens to be a judge. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.